morning's uh, title, One Life for Many, from John chapter 11, verses 45 to 57. So this morning we arrive at the, at the end, at the conclusion of chapter 11 of John. And uh, it will be a good spot for us to take a pause from John as we lead up to Christmas and uh, we will resume the rest of our series in John sometime uh, early next year. Now in the context, first of all we look at the context of, of John and at the close of this chapter we find ourselves practically at the close of Jesus' earthly or public ministry, let's say, his public ministry. From here on, many of the events of Passion Week, which will be recorded from chapters 13 to 17, were in the upper room between Jesus and his disciples. And the transition chapter is the following one, chapter 12, which then sort of joins up the first 11 chapters and then leads us into the passion story, the passion narrative. So, moving from the context of Scripture to the context of history, this is the lead-up to the Passover when pilgrims from all the surrounding districts will be arriving in Jerusalem. And before they could take part of the feast, there were preparations as they had to purify themselves ceremonially. And the people would be starting to gather, starting to come to Jerusalem in the weeks leading up to the Passover. Of course, the people coming to this very significant, very special Passover had very little idea of the preparations that had begun before time began. Human minds could not appreciate what was going on in the background and the significance of this Passover. Make no mistake, the events that would soon transpire here would echo in all of human history and into eternity. But before we get to that, let's uh, pull back a little bit and we're going to deal this morning with the reactions to the raising of Lazarus that we looked at last week. So in verses 45 to 46 we have the mixed reactions. Therefore many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did believed in him. But, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Unsurprisingly, like many of the other miracles that Jesus did, the reactions to this one is also mixed. It is true, it is true what someone said. The same sun that melts the wax also hardens the clay. Many of the Jews, many of the Jews who witnessed the raising from the dead of Lazarus did believe in Jesus. How could you not? Here is this stinking corpse coming out of the grave 
all wrapped up like a mummy. He's alive. How could you not believe? It was so obvious what had happened. But others, of course, out of hostility to Jesus, went to the Pharisees and dobbed him in. Why would they do that? Why would they go to the sworn enemies of Jesus? Because probably they shared the same concern about Christ's growing influence. The same fears that the Pharisees had, they also had. There is, of course, no greater proof in the Bible than the raising of Lazarus in John chapter 11 about how seeing miracles, even truly amazing miracles at that, will not necessarily convert souls. We saw this again and again in the Old Testament. People saw the wonderful miracles that God performed. To compare to the parting of the Red Sea, this would have to be right up there. Of course, it is only, in terms of its magnitude, it's only leapt over and, and left for dead, so to speak, by the raising of Jesus himself from the dead. Here they see it, they see the miracles, and they still don't believe. In the Gospel of Luke, chapter 16, Jesus Jesus told the story of the rich man and the beggar, whose name just happens to be Lazarus. They both died. The rich man and Lazarus both died and went to their respective places. One went to paradise and one went to hell. The poor man was suffering and he saw that Lazarus was at Abraham's bosom. The rich man, really, really struggling, pleaded, pleaded with Abraham to please send Lazarus on a mission, on a mission to, to tell his five brothers who were still alive to please go there and to warn them of the consequences that awaits them unless they convert, unless they start believing, unless they change their life. They're going to end up in this place of torment. So please, Father Abraham, send somebody out there. He is desperate. I can't stop the suffering that is happening to me here. I can't even get a glass of water in this place of torment. So, but at least he starts caring about other people. He starts caring about his brothers. And Abraham's remarkable response was that don't listen to Moses and the prophets that have already been sent on a mission to tell, to warn, to direct over and over and over one servant after another like the parable of the vineyard. 
if they don't listen to them, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Of course, we know this to be true. This incident with Lazarus in the Gospel of John is a clear example of that stubborn, obstinate unbelief that will not believe even though the evidence is absolutely overwhelming. When you cut it down to the chase, most time he actually most times I think it actually takes more faith to be an unbeliever than it does to be a believer. When you deny the obvious, you know that it is much more than just proof and what your eyes can see and feel and touch and smell. It's much more than that. This is a spiritual, a spiritual problem. So we go to verses 47 to 48. What we want to do is get Jesus at all costs. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we going to do? What, what are we accomplishing? Here is this man performing many signs. If, if we just simply let him go on like he is, everyone will believe in him and then the Romans will come and they'll take both our temple and our nation and it will all be over. They're getting frustrated. They tried to persuade individuals not to follow Jesus. They followed through with intimidation. We're going to hurt you. And they had challenged his teachings in public forums. They planted people in different places where Jesus was. Some of them even, we saw the many attempts on his life already and Jesus miraculously just walked straight through them. In spite of all of these things, Jesus continued to teach, continued to perform miracles. His influence continued to grow. They're getting frustrated. Word got around very quickly of who Jesus was. This led them, of course, to question their own effectiveness as leaders. What are we doing? Implying that whatever they were doing wasn't working. And then they bemoaned the fact that if Jesus continues to perform miracles, there will be terrible consequences. Afraid that if people believed in Jesus as the Messiah, acknowledge him as such, then Rome is going to get upset, they're going to come and destroy the temple and Israel... Now, obviously, the empire, the Roman Empire, gave freedom, gave certain freedoms to the vassal states. To the, as long as they pay their taxes to Rome, they'll be left alone. They can do whatever they want. They can practice their religious stuff. But they feared that if Jesus were allowed to continue, that people will start calling for him to be made king, which is something that Jesus already resisted and that Rome would suddenly end their privileges. 
Now, was this a, a reasonable fear on the part of the religious authorities? No, it wasn't. It was an excuse. The Romans weren't really concerned with the growing popularity of Jesus and his disciples. Jesus had healed soldiers and people of influence. They had nothing against Jesus. He was a peaceful, law-abiding individual. So were his disciples. He didn't run around causing or stirring dissension. No problem whatsoever with the Romans. In fact, when he came to Jesus' trial, and I'm preempting it here, when he came to Jesus' trial, the people were given a choice between someone who was, in fact, a rebel insurrectionist, someone who wanted a revolution against the occupying Romans. His name was Barabbas. And they were given a choice. Who do you want Jesus? Do you want miracle-working, peace-loving? Or do you want a terrorist? And they said, we want the terrorist. Yes. What is wrong with you people? Okay. Just pull back a little bit and look at what is happening in the media today and the way that they control the masses. Wouldn't God be just saying, what is wrong with you people? What is wrong with you? Can't you consider the consequences of what you are doing here? And yet, when people are given a choice, even a democratic choice, people choose Barabbas all the time. It's sad, isn't it? It was, in fact, the religious leaders who were concerned about the growing influence of Jesus, the way what they... Jesus was an excuse, but they were worried about their own diminishing power and influence. I think they call it, we can call it DRS. DRS. No, it's not the decision review system that they use in cricket. DRS is diminishing relevance syndrome. Diminishing relevance syndrome. that uh, you're losing power, you're losing influence. You're going to lose your position. People aren't going to listen to you. It happens to us as we get older. Diminishing relevance syndrome. A lot of us uh, deny it, of course. But you know what? the very thing that they feared. Irony is that the very thing that they feared happened 
in AD 70 uh, when the Romans destroyed the temple, they destroyed Jerusalem and with it the whole of Old Testament Judaism. Just some 35 years later, the whole of Jerusalem and the whole system was totally obliterated. By this time, Jesus had healed a man who had been lame for 38 years. He fed the multitudes with five loaves, two fish. He walked on the sea. He had given sight to a man who was born blind. He raised the dead. All amazing, amazing miracles. But they couldn't, they couldn't accept what the signs, they were signs that pointed toward him. And today, like yesterday, people reject the genuine gospel because of what the implications are. What the implications is that they cannot be running their life. Suddenly, Jesus is on the throne, that it will cost them. Sadly, like the people of Israel, they will end up paying a much higher price for their rejection than they had ever dreamed of. When the highest cost that we could pay was already paid on the cross. If you don't accept the price that was paid, you will have to pay the price. This whole thing had to do with power and control. We see it in families. We see it in politics. We see it even in churches hard for people to let go of their influence. If you come up against God, there's only going to be one winner. The contest is not even fair, actually. This is why we must always listen to the words of John the Baptist who said, he must increase and I, I must decrease. He gets bigger, I get smaller. He gets taller, I get shorter. He grows more powerful, I grow weaker. That's the way it works. Now in verses 49 to 51, we're going to look at political expediency. Then one of them named named Caiaphas, uh, who was a high priest that year, spoke up, You know, nothing at all. You do not realise that it is better for you that one man die for the people than the whole nation perish. Just to give you an idea, the Sanhedrin is a little bit like our parliament today. Two major parties, left and right, conservatives and and the liberals, If the religious Pharisees were the conservatives, the the fundamentalists, the Sadducees, the Sadducees, the other party, they were the left, the radicals. The Sadducees didn't, you see, the Sadducees didn't really believe in God or in anything supernatural. They didn't believe in the resurrection. They denied miracles. They denied the existence of angels. 
life after death, etc. And within Judaism, the office of high priest is a very treasured position, very coveted. But by this time, because of the occupation of Rome, it was actually the Romans who actually auctioned off the position of high priest to the highest bidder. Caiaphas had a lot of money, so therefore he was able to buy himself the franchise for one year and another year. And every year after that, he paid his way into politics. That's never happened before, has it? He did it for 18 years. He got the job and he belonged to the Sadducees, the ultimate pragmatists. And like a typical mafia boss, Caiaphas, in essence, was telling the Sanhedrin that Jesus needed to be sacrificed so that the nation of Israel and its people could be spared from Rome's wrath. He was worried about his job. His argument for putting Jesus to death had nothing to do with justice. It was all about political expediency. Caiaphas was not proposing, and this sounds a lot like substitutionary atonement, doesn't it? But Caiaphas is not proposing that, even though that's what it looks like. But rather what he was proposing was the end justifies the means. It was better for an innocent man to be murdered than for he and others to lose their place of importance. So be it. Just Let's just think a little bit about how many crimes are committed for expedience. More than that, how many crimes go unpunished for the sake of expedience? Let me give you some current examples. Jamal Khashoggi was a dissident Saudi journalist living in the US. A couple of months ago he was murdered in Turkey by orders from the Saudi Arabian prince for speaking against the Saudi crown. Just a reminder, Saudi Arabia is a major exporter of fuel, oil fuel around the world. So a crime has been committed, but we don't really want to upset Saudi Arabia because nobody wants to be yeah, an embargo on Saudi oil, which is about, let's say, I don't know, a quarter of the world supply. The embargo, Saudis, bang, oil prices go up, then Paul Mosichuk has to go up to the Bowser, and suddenly instead of paying $1.40, he has to pay like $2 or $2.50. No, I'm not going to do that. So some journalist gets killed. So what? I don't care. I just want my fuel to be cheap. That's called expediency. And don't worry, it's not just me, it's you as well. So all this wonderful ideal pursuit of truth and justice and peace, forget about that, 
let's just, you know, let's not get too carried away with this, with this murder. Let's just, shh, you know, nothing to see here. You might have heard the name Asia Bibi, Pakistani Christian woman who was falsely convicted of blasphemy by Pakistani court and was sentenced to death by hanging in 2010. A subsequent court freed her, but the mob is outraged by the decision of the court. She's in hiding with her family. They're trying to find a solution because people are upset in the country because she's been freed. People are outraged. Great Britain at first thought about the idea of offering her asylum from Pakistan, but then denied it because her asylum uh, would mean that a lot of Pakistani Muslims living in Great Britain are going to get upset if she comes over there. So suddenly her asylum offer was withdrawn. So we are willing to sacrifice an innocent woman acquitted from the courts, not just her but her family as well, so we can maintain some type of peace back home in our country It's better to sacrifice one or even a whole family for the sake of keeping the peace. I think Australia has offered asylum, but, well, it's just hanging there, isn't it? Because if suddenly we see protests in the streets and everything else, that's going to be withdrawn as well. This is how expediency works. This is how it works. What about abortion? I've got your ears pricked up. How many women have an abortion to avoid embarrassment or responsibility or inconvenience? There's a story of a girl who went for, after she had an abortion, she went to a post-abortion counselling because of everything she went through. Her father, her father was a deacon in a church and would not face the fact that his daughter was unmarried and pregnant. And even though she did not want to go through an abortion, her father forced her to have it. Subsequently, she lost all respect for her father. He lost his daughter and he lost the grandchild for the sake of expedience. Let me ask you, what are you prepared to compromise? It's easy to point the fingers Caiaphas and his his mob and the Sanhedrin. What would you and I be prepared to do? Would you go so far as to deny your faith for fear of losing your job and maybe losing your house? Is your faith that negotiable to you? Many brothers and sisters are in prison today around the world 
because they would not deny their saviour, irrespective of the cost, even their own lives. Brothers and sisters, the time is coming when we might have to face the same scenario. Let us not be too hasty in pointing the fingers at our politicians and political ex- at their political expedience and justice and social justice and all that other stuff when we might be called to bear the cost as well. Come and watch the movie tonight. This is an ad. This is an ad to Liverpool Baptist Church. 6 p.m. tonight. Tortured for Christ at 6 p.m. at the chapel in Preston's. Come along and watch what paying the price of their faith is like. Back to our sermon. <laughs> that was the ad break, yes. That was the ad break. <laughs> the accidental prophet, verses 51 to 53. He did not say this on his own, but as high priest, that year he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation. And not only for the Jewish nation, but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together, make them one. From that day on, they plotted to take his life. I don't know about you, but do you struggle with the idea that prophecy... Biblical prophecy could be uttered by an unbeliever, an enemy of God. Can it? If God can use a donkey, if God can use a pastor, then surely he can can use anybody. The Apostle... John is telling us that Caiaphas was was an evil man, no doubt about that, working out what he thought was his own practical agenda. But God used him to speak prophetically of Christ and his atoning sacrifice. He he was speaking at at a political level. John was not. John was interpreting the time. He saw them on a a prophetic level. Prophecy, fulfilling prophecy. Isaiah 53, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Caiaphas thought it was his agenda, but it was God's agenda all along. Caiaphas didn't realise the depth and the extent of his words. He meant one thing, God intended another. I don't hear too many uh, <laughs> I don't hear too many sermons on the atonement based on the words of Caiaphas for that very reason. But it's true, isn't it? Remember the words of Joseph in our series in Genesis? We looked at this. Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. Remember the words of Joseph to his brothers. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring it about, why? What was the purpose? To bring it about that many people should be kept alive 
as they are today. Caiaphas meant the words for evil. God meant his words for good. God was going to send his son, Jesus Christ, to die for the nation, but not as Caiaphas understood it. He was not going to die to save the nation from Rome. He was going to die in order to save believing Jews from sin. And not just the nation of Israel, but future believing Gentiles like you and me. We are engrafted into the blessing of God. Those events in Calvary all those years ago. The accidental prophet. And a retreat from verses 54 to 57. Now Jesus is not going camping. In verse 54 we read, Therefore Jesus no longer moved about publicly among the people of Judea. Instead he withdrew to a region near the wilderness to a village called Ephraim where he stayed with his disciples. And then in verse 57 But the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that anyone who found out where Jesus was should report it so that they may arrest him. Jesus withdraws about 20 miles uh, northeast of Jerusalem to an obscure village. We we don't actually know the location. Jesus was not running away, but because the religious leaders were after him, he had to withdraw. This action by the Sanhedrin effectively ended Christ's three and a half year public ministry. But he did so, he withdrew just for a little bit because his time, his time had not yet fully come. Jesus knew all along that this Passover that was coming just in a very short while was going to be his last and he will, he will be the sacrifice. He uses the time to, to spend time with his disciples to train them, to prepare them for what was to come. Meanwhile, the people are asking themselves, Jesus had come to the Passover, that was part of his tradition, he had come to be part of the feast and the people are asking, is he going to come this year? But of course, the hostility was now at boiling point. Yes, he will come. Yes, he will be riding on a donkey. Yes, he will be giving his life for many. Yes, it was an injustice. But behind it all is the hand of God manoeuvring all these events and people to accomplish his perfect will. Final thoughts. Here, once again in the Gospel of John, I just can't get away from it, the sovereignty of God, the unseen hand of God in human history. Men could try and do their worst, throw everything at God, but they cannot alter his divine plan. 
you and I must understand the times in which we live. We have the script in front of us. It is not a secret. God has given us his word. God is still at work. When he comes again, he will not be riding on a donkey. King of kings and Lord of lords. Everything is pointing, everything is, 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 is moving in that direction. God is still at work, still carrying out his program according to his schedule, moving men to raise up kingdoms and overthrow kingdoms, to put people in power, to take them out of power. The rulers of this age don't understand this and they think they got their hand on the steering wheel. They do not. God has. He's on the throne. And then our lives might be going through difficult times at present but our difficulties are being used by God to accomplish his eternal purpose for our lives. Give continually, give thanks to God in the midst of your trial, in the midst of your difficulty. Give thanks to God for his purposes. God is causing all things to work together for the good of those that love him. Does this include our enemies and those who want to harm us? Yes. I know it's hard to understand, but yes. Our lives are not about the absence of trouble, but about the presence of God in our lives in the midst of all the trouble. Continue to focus in Christ and his work, his redeeming work and his eternal purposes. Let us sing in Christ alone. Amen.